I'm Andy Kesson, and this is A Bit Lit. Founded at the beginning of the UK lockdown, A Bit Lit is about conversation, celebrating and exploring theatre, literature and creative work across all periods and of all kinds. We've talked to professional wrestlers and about Ghostbusters and medieval sex positivity. We've looked at the histories of race, gender and sexuality. We followed migrating coconuts and the history of wine and cheese. We've gone from Jane Austen and Shakespeare to EastEnders via the history of early television, young adult fiction, photography, animation and documentary making. And with over 100 films already, many other subjects as well. Join the conversations at our website, abitlit.co or on YouTube and follow us on Twitter at abitlit. Hello, Will. Welcome to A Bit Lit. Would you like to start by telling us a bit about yourself? Hi, Emma. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, yeah, Thank you for joining sure. us. Um, it's such a pleasure. Um, uh, my name is Will Tosh and I'm Research Fellow and Lecturer at Shakespeare's Globe in London. Wonderful. And would you like to give us a bit of a sense of what your interests are and what led mm-hmm. you to Shakespeare's Globe and what you're working on at the moment? Yeah. Uh, so... I, uh, so I work at, at the Globe with um, the very wonderful Professor Farah Green Cooper, uh, and we um, uh, run the research and higher education side of things at the Globe. So we run courses, we lead performance research in our, our two theatres, um, and we we write about early modern drama uh, and, and culture as well. And we also we also um, provide what's called dra- dramaturgical research for the productions that take place. Uh, at the Globe. So we work as uh, advisors and creative consultants for directors and uh, and new writers who who work at our theatres. And I ended up at the Globe uh, six years ago, six and a bit years ago now, when the indoor playhouse, the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse, was first opened. Mm. And and I had just finished uh, a PhD and I first started at the Globe as a postdoctoral research fellow and have have been there uh, ever since. Um, I, I came not from uh, from early modern drama as a background. I did a PhD at Queen Mary um, on um, really not even on a literary topic. I worked on a, a small coterie of late Elizabethan spies or intelligences mm. was the word that they used at the time. And I used this letter cache, a letter archive uh, at Lambeth Palace Library in London to study the, the, the male friendship networks, the kind of effective emotional networks mm. of a spy called Anthony Bacon. He's Francis Bacon's lesser known older brother. Uh, and Anthony is, both the Bacons are fascinating, but Anthony is, is particularly interesting in the way that he used male friendship and um, uh, sort of um, professional acquaintanceship uh, and also aristocratic patronage and those sorts of relationships as the prime kind of determining relationships of his life. And he didn't marry. Uh, and he got into kind of all sorts of difficulties with his mother for his avoidance of marriage. Uh, and Francis Bacon, one can say something similar about, although he, he did in fact uh, marry not very successfully uh, in later life. And so I, was, I wrote a, a PhD project that, that looked at these relationships and asked questions about what Anthony was doing, what he sort of thought he was doing, what kind of mode of life he thought he was pursuing, and the extent to which we could relate Anthony's life to a a more modern idea of sexual subjectivity or homosexuality. Uh, And and the answer is sort of, it's complicated, as you might imagine. Um, But that was the the sort of, that was a PhD project, which Mm. really has very little to do with 
drama and Shakespeare. Although Anthony Bacon does at one point live quite near to uh, a, an in-yard theatre where plays are performed. And so Anthony's mother gets obs obsessively worried about the fact that he's near this very sort of dis disreputable, dangerous uh, playhouse. Oh, wow. Um, so but, even just spatial proximity to the oh, playhouse yeah, is a matter disaster, of concern. Disaster. Yeah. Stay away. Stay, stay as far <laughs> away as possible. Uh, so I, I was finishing up this PhD project uh, as the, the playhouse was, was coming to, 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 to completion. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, initially, I, I, it, was, it seemed sort of that, that this was this wonderful position, this wonderful job was had no relation at all to the work that I'd, that I'd done. But actually before doing a PhD, I'd, I'd worked fairly fleetingly as an actor uh, and a theatre producer. So, and I, and I sort of given up the hope of ever being able to bring those two sort of strands of my career together. I, I sort of resigned myself to a, 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 an academic career of hiding five or six years of my CV as a sort of the time that we don't talk about uh, and oh, before I sort of went on and did my PhD. And as it turned out, actually, I, I, that part of my uh, earlier career was, was, was crucial because it means I have an understanding of how theatre works today, which is one of the main elements of my job. And so you were able so to I, bring it I, out I was into able the to light. Bring those two together and say that sort of my, my PhD had, had allowed me to kind of explore all the elements of early modern culture outside of the Playhouse mm. and my previous career as, uh, in, in theatre meant I understood what a, at least what a modern theatre kind of is and how it works right. um, not from any kind of historical perspective as such so that means that I've, I've still got these sort of two strands really of my research I, I, I work on performance uh, through the globe I've, I've written a book on the, on the indoor playhouse but actually I'm, I'm my, my sort of intellectual training is as a, an archival historian a literary historian life writer that, that kind of that kind of area and that's where I'm slightly, I've slightly sort of edged back uh, for the next, uh, the next, the next project. Oh, how exciting! Okay, so could you tell us a bit more about your next project and about how? What was it about it that drew you back into into that world? And I is, can, it, is it linked yeah. to your first project? It, yeah, it, it is. So it's it's it, it's very linked, and it's linked through a, a, a story that doesn't really reflect well on on me at all. And I so I I I, I wrote a book on the basis of my my PhD project about. Bacon Circle and about the, this sort of this sort of world, uh, which came out a couple of years ago, and and uh, and, and in a in a review, um, the reviewer who is now a, a good friend, a very good scholar called Robert Stagg, uh, pointed out at the end of the review that it was sort of all very, all well and good writing about these 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 men in this kind of coterie circle, but I kind of completely ignored all the other such a similar coterie circles that I might have written about, which of course I had because I, I didn't really know about them and I was still deeply unqualified to write about them. <laughs> And he said, and, and, and Rob said at the end of the review, uh, you know, could say more about Shakespeare, could say more about Marlowe, uh, you know, he could say more about Richard Barnfield, a writer of uh, profoundly homoerotic verse. And I remember reading this review and I sort of stopped in my tracks. I was not literally walking along, you know, and I, and I was like, I've, I've never heard of this writer. This is extraordinary. I've, I've, writ I've, I've researched and written a PhD and then a book on homoeroticism in late Elizabethan culture and society and I have never heard of someone who has every sort of right to be regarded as canonical uh, wow. so that was sort of the that was the prompt for me to go away and, and find out about this writer and in a sense kind of a tone a tone to him a tone to his memory <laughs> yeah. for having completely failed to come across him in 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 many many years of, of education and research so um, that he's I mean, the that subject. says something about the field oh, sorry 
Yeah, I just think that's no, something about Field as well as about you, right? The fact that that he wasn't visible to you as a researcher. Oh, that, is, that is so nice of you to say, Emma. No, so I think that, <laughs> I, I'm going to totally blame blame the field for for, for this complete absence on, on my part. But I, I th I, I'm sure that's true. But I think it, it it's and it's certainly the case as, as we might as we might discuss that that Barnfield is really neglected, and there are lots mm. of. I'm sure very interesting reasons for that, but I think also there are some interesting questions that we can ask about about why he he, he might be so. Um, but anyway, so I went to, I went away and and did some some reading uh, on Richard Barnfield and some some long delayed research uh, on Richard Barnfield and found out really wonderful and, and fascinating things. So I'm, I'm that's it's still slightly unclear what this project will look like, mm. and it may or may not revolve solely around this one. Uh, this one writer, but it's brought me back to the questions that I was circling around during my PhD research and being a little bit tentative with as well uh, when I was when I was when I was researching the PhD, mm. which relate to questions of sexual subjectivity and sexual identity and sexuality, all of which have been very very well covered before, of course, particularly in relation to Shakespeare studies, um, but which have, or at least had when I was finishing up the PhD six or seven years ago, set, settled into a, a kind of received set of uh, um, conclusions about, about how early modern people regarded their sexual identities, which mm. very loosely, very broadly, uh, can be understood as a, a distinction between um, uh, identities based around acts or things that you do, uh, and uh, uh, identities based around um, a sense of the self, identities based around identity, I guess. So today we have a very clear idea that, of course, the, the fluidity means people kind of move around and between and among all sorts of labels, but we still sort of have an idea that the labels have some kind of meaning, uh, that we might be heterosexual or homosexual or bisexual or asexual or, or, or even, even fluid being itself a, a, a label that suggests something about identity. Funnily enough, e even that sense of stability is actually being shifted quite a lot at the moment. But we we've certainly grown up in a world where those those are the kind of the poles, the labels that we're all kind of living in and sort of settling ourselves in uh, with various degrees of kind of you know comfort and happiness. But we're sort of that's the world that that was sort of was was sort of was sort of is sort of given to us kind of as we come into as we come into ourselves as people, mm. and that you know we're told you know you know I'm sure you you were taught in the same way that. That's something that's not that's sort of foreign to an early modern culture that yeah. people don't think of themselves as primarily heterosexual primarily homosexual they think of themselves as subject to all kinds of uh, uh temptations mm. and those temptations might be to acts that are licit uh, or licit in certain contexts such as marriage but not outside of them um or illicit in all, in all contexts because they're just yeah. bad and wrong and forbidden by by god and sinful but the general sense is that sort of more or less everyone is liable in, in, in Shakespeare's time, you know, more or less everyone is liable to perform uh, these acts. And it's the responsibility of the kind of God-fearing individual to mm. clamp down on those urges and not give way to lusts, to temptations, to, to things like that. There's some, there's some wonderful, if you, if, if, you know, if you, if you go away and read sort of Puritan tub thumpers who kind of get very exercised by... Uh, by sins and, and, and sins of the flesh. You get these sort of amazing phrases about lechery and licentiousness and sodomy and bestiality and this and that. All of it. And there's this wonderful phrase that one of them uses that all of these kind of, all of these sins 
uh, lie lurking inside us like a nest oh. of snakes in an old hedge, kind of waiting <laughs> to sort of like, waiting to kind of burst out. And that, you know, and, and I think that, what an image. And, that, and I think in many sense, you know, in many ways, I think that's, that's probably a very uh, reasonable way to think about human desire, you know, that mm. it, it, actually our desires aren't kind of trammeled into little sort of boxes that say mm. straight or gay or whatever, that they're all kind of, you know, polymorphously perverse and bursting out of us in all sorts of hard to control ways. And that's, that's certainly sort of the, the way in which histories of sexuality are taught in mm. relation to early modern studies and, and certainly in relation to, for example, a writer like Shakespeare, where, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm often asked, I'm sure you're asked as well by students or by members of the public, ooh, so I've heard that Shakespeare was gay. What do you right. think? And you yeah. Think, well, there's a big question. And how do we start that? And do we start that with the nest of snakes in an old hedge and kind of go from there? Or do we sort of go, or do we go, no, well, yes. You know, it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a challenging question. Definitely. And so when I was working on the, the PhD project about these spies who seem to kind of exist in a normal affective world, I was mm. very cautious and very sort of good and obedient uh, as a student in sort of saying, well, you know, there's the, the question we should be, you know, we shouldn't be asking is, were these guys gay? That's mm. just absolutely not a question that we should be asking. And in a funny kind of way, as I've kind of got further away from that project, and as I discovered more about Barnfield, and we'll talk about him in a second, I'm kind of thinking, do you know what? Why is that such a terrible question? That's fascinating. You know, it, I, 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 can, I, I do not, you know, I'm, I'm not discarding mm. my, my training whatsoever, but that sense of predominating erotic interest mm. isn't just culturally produced, it's biological as well, you know, it's a, it's a meeting place of all of those, it's a meeting of all of those things of biological, yeah. of cultural interpretation of, of, of society, but they, they kind of all sort of mix and mix and, and roll together. So I'm sort of, I'm, I'm opening that kind of can of worms now a little bit and thinking, what does it mean to think about people who have a predominating sexual preference, a, a slant, the norm that isn't mm -hmm. the one that you're told you're supposed to have? And what yeah. kind of language might you use to describe that? And what kind of art might be produced in relation to it? And that's such an interesting question, because I suppose, because I, I had exactly the same training as you in terms of thinking about, yeah, sexuality in relation to acts specifically, and those acts in relation to sin, and no sense of, yeah, of a sexual identity in the way we understand it now. And I feel like a lot of that, and especially in teaching, is sort of fighting against the Victorian idea yeah. of, of identities as well as the modern yeah. one, and that shapes yeah. so much of how our students yeah. come to a sense yeah. of pastness through that. So I suppose maybe that's, narrowed the way we as scholars think about things because we're reacting against that and trying to be more specifically early modern and therefore that's yeah. so exciting to think that there might be bigger yeah. questions that we're not asking yet or that could could be asked in relation I, to, to and, and, and other and I, and I have no idea you know I have no idea how, how I have no idea really what I'm seeing you know in terms of when I when I read Bonfield's poetry uh it it, it strikes me as unusual and that may be a, that may be quite a danger sign and if it really strikes me as unusual, it may be because I'm picking up on something that chimes with kind of modern sentiments in a way that creates a kind of trick of the light. And so I'm oh, seeing something which is, yeah. which is, you know, which says more about my own kind of attitude or our, our, you know, our culture's attitude to sexuality. And all of these questions are questions that histories, historians of sexuality have addressed for like the past 50 years. Like, the, you know, the, the, this is more a reflection on my own lack of encyclopedic reading than it is 
perhaps on, on a sort of, you know, bold challenge to the field. But I think what's interesting about Barnfield, and I, I, let's talk about him now because I've been mentioning his name and not, not giving yeah, him any... Yeah, absolutely, yeah. But he's a, he's a, he's a poet who, who, whose work not only kind of sets up a challenge to this, you know, the, the, the sort of established view of, of early modern uh, sexuality, mm. but one whose obscurity also poses all sorts of questions about why it is that he hasn't been more embraced. So to give you a little sort of Barnfield 101, so he's a, he's a, um, a, 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 a late Elizabethan um, lyric poet, a, a postulist. Uh, he's, he's born in 1574 uh, in, uh, in the Midlands. Uh, and at the time of his sort of literary success, it's quite a short-lived literary success, in the mid 1590s, he's still very young. He's he's 20, 21. Something oh, wow. Like okay. So he's yeah. come he's come through uh, university. He may well have spent time like a lot of um, young men, a lot of gentlemen, at the inns of court. We don't know that for sure, but it seems very likely. And he's by this very young age, by by his early 20s, by 21, he is part of the literary milieu, the literary world of wow. London. And, and we know that because in 1598, so only a few years later when he's still very young, still in his mid-twenties, uh, the writer Francis Mears, who Shakespeareans and students of Shakespeare might be familiar with because uh, he mentioned Shakespeare as well, uh, in a book called Palladis Tamia, which is this sort of long and very kind of um, rebarbative collection of sort of adages and wisdom, which very few people read nowadays, other than one little chapter in it, where he gives a little survey of modern literature, and he compares it with the literature of, of ancient Greece and Rome and of the, of, 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 of the continent uh, uh, of Europe, modern Italian and Spanish and French writers. And in this little section, uh, Francis Mears reels off a dozen or so Shakespeare plays, he talks about Shakespeare being a very well-known uh, playwright and talks about Shakespeare's sonnets, his sugared sonnets, he, he says. Uh, and Francis Mears also mentions his friend Richard Barnfield. His who is friend. His friend, who is one of the, the as, as Mears says, one of the best Englishmen for pastoral, for pastoral poetry, to be compared with the, 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 the greats of uh, contemporary Italian poetry and uh, and indeed Virgil uh, and Theocritus, who are the, the big, the big classical models. So that's that's a real indication that that, that Barnfield, in his own time, had a degree of literary um, renown, uh, possibly even, even celebrity. Uh, and it is a, true that. Mm, I'm sorry, sorry, just a quick question to follow up on that for anyone who's watching this video who isn't sure about what pastoral is or mm, means or implies. Mm, what, what is that? So pastoral is a literary form that, 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 that traces its origin very far back to, to ancient Greece and ancient Rome uh, that, 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 that situates the kind of various poetic figures um, in a, a kind of idyllic landscape, um, sometimes called Arcadia. So a sort of proto-Eden or sort of pre-Eden, if we're talking about pre-Christian um, yeah. cultures here, but a kind of a sort of wonderful rural landscape of shepherds and shepherdesses and pipers piping on panpipes and falling in love and reciting poetry. And, and this is a, it was a sort of it was a kind of um, uh, a sort of a sort of luxurious idyll of um, uh, uh, labourless agricultural labour. Uh, and it's certainly the, the, the Roman form of pastoral, as, as characterized by, by Virgil, it 
comes to be associated actually with quite kind of edgy politics because Virgil is writing his pastoral work in the midst of like political and cultural turmoil as a sort of um, uh, as a sort of fantasy of peace and stability and he kind of brings into his pastoral work a bit of sort of political comment and so the pastoral mode mode picks up as a, a, a kind of revives itself as a, a fashionable literary mode in the mid 16th century uh, all over Europe and and uh, and a bit later on in England uh, and you uh, the writers who, who who sort of who make it incredibly fashionable and popular one of whom is Edmund Spencer who, who might be you know viewers might know uh, as the author of the fairy queen the great big thumping uh, text of the 1590s but um he also writes a very successful uh, uh, pastoral sequence called the shepherd's calendar which brings the sort of the sort of pastoral figures um shepherds with names like kind of colin clout and hobbinol and chloe and daphne and things like mm. that into the kind of english literary uh, consciousness yeah. and that's very much what um what barnfield is doing and he absolutely sees himself as spencer's heir uh, he sort of he kind of he writes about himself imitating Spencer and trying to do what Spencer is doing with his literary uh, forms. And um, but what Barnfield does is he takes this pastoral mode, uh, which in its original in, in its Virgilian form, it's kind of its form as as as, uh, 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 as written out by by Virgil in in, in ancient Rome has within it the potential for a lot of homoeroticism and kind of queer sentiment. Because in, in, in Virgil's, um, in one of his uh, pastoral works, the second eclogue, he describes a, a sort of a, a yearning, unreciprocated uh, uh, love of an older shepherd for a shepherd boy. And this, this is extremely, an extremely popular text through the Renaissance, extremely well known, although not quite as well known in English uh, translations. So it's, it's one of those sort of Latin works that educated men are allowed to read, but mm other people aren't so it's this there's a slight kind of codedness to the eroticism of, of, of Virgil's uh, second eclogue and Barnfield comes along and he basically uh, uh, he, he basically drags that that homoerotic pastoral from I'm, I'm gonna say the Latin closet I'm not sure if that <laughs> actually means anything but sort of from the Latin closet <laughs> into into the vernacular sort of outed open air and he write he, in, he basically englishes that whole approach and he writes a, a, a he writes a wonderful pastoral fantasy called the affectionate shepherd in in two parts uh following uh the poet and um, the, the the shepherd daphnis's sort of obsessive love and adoration uh for uh, um uh, queer klaxon ganymede the shepherd boy uh, and this is a this is a, a a kind of love that traces across two parts of the affectionate shepherd, and then actually gets continued in a in a run of sonnets that Barnfield writes the the following year. So it's this astonishing sustained exploration of same sex eroticism, mm. tracing across a two part poem and indeed into another volume, which is published uh, uh, the following um, year. Although actually only a few months later, it's just into the next calendar year. And Barnfield, you know, in, in, in the preparatory matter that Barnfield writes at the, at the start of uh, uh, the second volume um, of, of sonnets, he makes it quite clear that it's a sort of, it's a sort of intellectual continuation of, of, of the affectionate shepherd. Um, and he's very open about the tone, the content, the meaning, the subject matter of these poems, which as he says, really without any kind of demure, 
is the love of a shepherd for a boy. And so you have this astonishingly upfront, um, kind of sex, really sexy, kind of joyous poetry um, that, that if you've read any sort of Shakespeare or, or um, certainly Shakespeare sonnets or one of his longer narrative poems like Venus and Adonis, you'd be really familiar with the sort of style and the language because it's, mm. it's what we're used to with, with, with Shakespeare, but it's absolutely sort of put to a queer use. And I'm, gonna, I'm actually quite tempted to read you the opening couple of lines. Please do, yeah, Rachel, that would be wonderful. Uh, which I think is amazing. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna read you, uh, so the first two stanzas, um, and I'm really, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you the edition I'm using, which is a, a much treasured print on demand edition by, uh, edited by George Cloeter, which one can get on Amazon, uh, at least perhaps, out of crisis time um, but, there, but there is no readily available Barnfield edition uh, and that's wow. a, a big a big problem a big a big issue okay so this is the, the opening the opening two stanzas of uh, uh, the affectionate shepherd scarce had the morning star hid from the light heaven's crimson canopy with stars bespangled but I began to rue the unhappy sight of that fair boy that had my heart entangled Cursing the time, the place, the sense, the sin. I came, I saw, I viewed, I slipped in. If it be sin to love a sweet-faced boy whose amber locks trussed up in golden trammels dangle adown his lovely cheeks with joy when pearl and flowers his fair hair enamels. If it be sin to love a lovely lad, oh then sin I for whom my soul is sad. That's and on amazing. it goes. <laughs> and it's kind of and it's kind of, and it's kind of great. And there's a whole sort of series of, of of kind of moments in this poem where where Barnfield makes it very clear that what he's describing is profound erotic attachment mm. and erotic fantasy. You know, there's nothing particularly hard to gloss about a lot of it, you know, and I and, and and in a funny kind of way, I think that's one of the reasons why Barnfield has less of a, a kind of common, a kind of contemporary currency. Because he's, it's just, in a sense, there's less to say about him. He's just writing about it's sex. It's extremely direct. It's, it's yeah. extremely direct. Yeah. And I, uh, and I suppose that's, that, that, that's, I suppose that's an excuse. And I suppose that, that makes, that makes some sense. But there's also a great joy and pleasure in the, in the poetry because it is, at least to my, to my ears, pr pretty accessible, you know. It's, it's, yeah, it's astonishingly it's not, accessible. It's not, yeah. it's, it's not, you know, I mean, even some of Spencer, you kind of read and go, oh God, what are you writing about? What does this mean? Mm. And, as you know, there are elements in Barnfield that, that require a bit of glossing, but not a lot. And there's a great pleasure, I think, to be found in, in, his, in his work for anyone the kind who of has kind of the immediacy and a kind of glancing familiarity with Shakespearean uh, verse. Mm. The echoes are kind of there. You know, he, he's writing in very much the same world uh, as Shakespeare. Yeah. And the sonnets that he writes that, that a few months after The Affectionate Shepherd are fascinating because they're the first sonnets to be printed in English that relate a, a love between two men. And they predate Shakespeare's sonnets in print by, by 14 years. Although Shakespeare is obviously writing some of those sonnets at the same sort of time. And it seems very, very likely, almost, almost certain, that Barnfield and Shakespeare are reading each other's work. And that there's some sense of kind of mutual influence going on yes. between Barnfield's sonnets uh, and Shakespeare's. And I'm going to read you a sonnet, actually, as well. Thank you. That, that Please do. I, think, I think possibly my favourite my favorite Barnfield uh, uh, poem. So this comes from the collection called Cynthia, published in 1595, and it's sonnet number 11. 
and it's the same sort of story. It's the same story. It's it's Daphnis with his sort of um, uh, unrequited love for, for Ganymede. Sighing and sadly sitting by my love, he asked the cause of my heart sorrowing, conjuring me by heaven's eternal king to tell the cause which me so much did move. Compelled, quoth I, to thee will I confess. Love is the cause, and only love it is that doth deprive me of my heavenly bliss. Love is the pain that doth my heart oppress. And what is she, quoth he, whom thou dost love? Look in this glass, quoth I, there shalt thou see the perfect form of my felicity. When, thinking that it would strange magic prove, he opened it, and taking off the cover, he straight perceived himself to be my lover. And that's, that was the poem, really, that kind of, that sort of, I don't know, sort of set something off in me a little bit, because mm. it seems so clear from the poem that the speaker is holding the notion of a female beloved and his male beloved in the same space, Absolutely. the same sort of yeah. emotional, intellectual, imaginative space. The one just sort of, you know, replaces the other. Uh, and so this, this notion that, that male, certainly male-male homoeroticism, and I think the question of how, how Barnfield fits, fits into notions of female-female eroticism is really interesting. But what we've been taught about male-male eroticism, which is that we don't have a world of sort of sexual identities, what we have is male-male eroticism that comes out in different forms of relationships. It might come out in friendship, it might come out in service, it might come out in patronage, it might come out in bed sharing or sort of military context or prison, all these sorts of things. But it, what it doesn't, what, what it can't be imagined as is sort of the same as, as heterosexual eroticism. Mm. That poem comes on and you kind of go, ooh, but that, yeah, but Barnfield clearly does sort of see that. Yeah. You know, he, he, Barnfield is thinking, these two forms of emotion are comparable. Can be mapped not onto the same. each other. Not, they can be yeah. mapped onto each other. They, they, they have a, they, it, it, there's a coherence in thinking that one might be imagined as replacing the other or, or, or being experienced perhaps by both, but in comparable ways. Does that make sense? Completely, completely. Of... Yeah, because it really makes me think of, um, sorry to bring it back to Shakespeare again, but the, the moment in, in Twelfth Night and the sort of the describe, you know, Viola describing her love to Orsino and his assumption that she's talking yeah. about a man because he believes her to be yeah. a boy. And of course, exactly. that's the Shakespearean sleight of hand that means the two can be swapped. But I think it's, yes. that seems really similar. Yeah. That sort of, you're making an assumption about the gender of the person yeah. I love that maps onto the emotion but not the gender. Yeah, that's such a, such a great point. And I think that's, that's absolute. Uh, and these overlaps between Barnfield and Shakespeare are kind of everywhere. And I'm, and I'm very slightly sort of nervous about kind of opening that box and going, you know, because I think there's going to be lots, there's going to be lots and lots of uh, sort of areas of connection and, and, and commonality. And, and also perhaps with other, you know, uh, Marlowe is certainly a writer who Barnfield, mm. we, an enormous amount of and 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 I'm and I, I, I know there's, there's going to be a lot of sort of um a lot of uh, sort of intertextuality on this journey um yeah. but what I'm I suppose what I'm interested by in that in that in that sonnet which is perhaps a little bit different to the um to the moment in Twelfth Night where Orsino yeah. says to Viola as Cesario uh that Olivia's love can't be as powerful as his because men's love is different and men can kind of sustain these sort of wild emotions and she 
couldn't. And of course, the irony of the play is that Viola is right there feeling all of those feelings yeah. and holding it all in. That uh, again, you know, Barnfield is sort of saying that Barn, Barnfield, Barnfield is being the Viola. He, he's mm. sort of saying, you know, no, these, these sorts of these sorts of emotions are really comparable. The emotion is is the emotion sort of crosses between people and, and identities. It, there's not a sort of male way of loving and a female way of loving. They can be sort of, in a sense, regarded as as, uh, as overlapping. Yes, which does feel quite radical. That I yeah, totally, I, can, totally. I can see how you feel that sort of forces us to revise the way we're thinking about the whole kind of narrative of sexuality in the period. I mean, I'd, I'd love to just have you just read hundreds more bunch of poems <laughs> now and just keep talking about it. But I think we might need to start bringing the conversation towards a close. To. So could you tell me the question we're, we're ending all of these interviews with is a rather a, a gigantic one, and that is, what is literature? Is there anything you'd like to say that sort of speaks to that? So I, ha I have the advantage of having seen a couple of, of these wonderful bit lit videos uh, already, uh, and I and I jotted down that as the answer, as the question that we're all being asked. And a sensible person would have given it some real thought uh, <laughs> over the past uh, day or so. Um, I am not that person. So like all of your uh, guests thus far, virtually, um, I'm taken on the hop by this question. Uh, and so I think, so, 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 so from a, a point of view of Barnfield, I think, you mm. know, that question is fascinating because he, he only writes, um, uh, uh, he writes three um, um, collections to which we can put his name. And I think there's probably two more that are kind of dubia, uh, but almost certainly a, a, a by Barnfield, which are really interesting in their, in their own ways. Um, uh, and also have a, 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 an interesting degree of homoerotic content and sentiment. Um, but quite soon, Barnfield falls out of the literary canon uh, and is not kind of that sort of um, that sort of body of Elizabethan literature that gets taken up in the 17th mm. century and later as the sort of nucleus of the English literary tradition, the English literary canon. Uh, although actually quite a lot of his work gets sort of accidentally ascribed to Shakespeare and some of that stuff gets included until they realize that it's not Shakespeare and they kick him out again and you know so, <laughs> so there's sort of so Barnfield's funny because he sort of he isn't literature for quite a long time uh until he gets he get he, one or two of his poems get included in the um in the first uh Paul Grave Golden Treasury this big 19th century collection of English literature which more than anything I think um kind of invents the idea of the English literary tradition with a focus on early modern verse because there's quite a lot of it and they're all dead so there's no worry about you know copyright um, and Barnfield actually does get a few a few of his pieces get included in that in that collection but that's a real outlier and actually Barnfield doesn't really get anthologized through the 20th century the Norton anthology bars him almost certainly on ideological grounds until the late 1990s uh, in the same way that people get a bit kind of funny about some of Shakespeare's uh, more overtly homoerotic sonnets. And even now, you know, Barnfield is, is unquestionably literature and part of the English literary tradition in, in the late 16th century. But as I said, you know, you'll, you'll struggle to find a copy of his, po of his poems, certainly his complete poems, mm -hmm. and you'll find one or two of them here and there in, early mo in collections of early modern verse. If you've got a collection of early modern homoerotic verse, you might find a bit more, but it will still it will still sort of be um in, in in pieces so i think you know literature 
lit literature is, is sort of is sort of made not born i think is one thing i would say in relation to barnfield and we all i guess have a a role to play in, in 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 sharing that making and making sure that it includes people we want to read and and think deserve to be read um and i suppose the other the other thing i would i'm just thinking in terms of the times we're living through you know i think for a lot of us i think literature i think literature is consolation i mm. think there's a sense in which it's one of those things that stays with us even you know in our in our isolation something that we can we can have as a companion even if we haven't got other forms of companions and perhaps that's a sort of sense of literature that that has been less uh, reflected on over the past uh, couple of uh, centuries um but you know in, in the way that Boethius writes you know the constellations of philosophy you know I think there's a sort of constellations of literature mode or sort of sentiment possibly uh, um, um, budding at the moment with all of us yes. who are trapped at home with our books. Yeah, and I think that resonates beautifully with everything that's going on. But so if, if literature is made, not born, and if Barnfield gives you consolation, then hopefully you'll be part of the remaking of, of Barnfield being part of the literary canon with your new book. I, I, in, in our brave new world, I want Barnfield front and centre, please. Excellent. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Will, for this wonderful conversation. It's oh, been thank you for having me, Emma. Thank you.